0: Well, uh, this week, uh, I was reminded of a story I heard many years ago about three dads who were sitting in a waiting room, waiting on their children to be delivered. Uh, Their wives were in labor uh, when the doctor broke through the door and said, hey, I need Sam. Where's Sam? Sam raised his hand and he says, hey man, you are the new daddy to twins. Uh, And Sam uh, was excited, jumping up and down. He goes, that's crazy. He goes, I actually play professional baseball. And he goes, and I play for the Minnesota Twins. And we're having twins. And he's all excited about that. Uh, and and then the, the other guys in the you know are high fiving him in the waiting room. And about an hour and a half later, uh, doctor comes in. He goes, "Hey, I'm looking for John. John's in here." He goes, "John, you got triplets." And John's like, dude, what?" And he's like, "That's crazy." He goes, "You Sam plays for the Minnesota Twins." He goes, "I work for 3M Corporation. How crazy is that?" When they look at the guy next to him, he falls out of the floor. He's white and pale. The doctor rushes over to him. He's like, man, are you okay? Slaps me on the face a few times. He's like, man, what's going on? He goes, dude, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> so today, whether you have one child, three child ch- children, five children, seven children, 11 children, uh, today we're going to be talking about parenting. Uh, and when we think about this, uh, it relates to God in our everyday life, uh, simply because one of the ways that God has designed His word to go forth is through the familial unit. Uh, That was one of the chief things that you saw in the nation of Israel, uh, that they believed that the way that the expression of God's goodness, His word to His people... They were to be instructed by the Word of God, and it was to happen as fathers instructed their children. And so today we're going to dive into a topic that, if I was probably teaching any topic over the last year, this is one that I would feel most inadequate in today. Um, That as a parent, it oftentimes is highs and lows. There's challenges. There's hard times. There's a lot of times you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, You feel like a failure. And so today, I want to just give you four principles that we can discover from God's Word in relation to Psalm 78. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 78. Uh, Maybe you're here and like, hey, I don't even know where Psalm is. That's It's it's in the Old Testament. It's a part of a poetical section of Scripture where there's five poetical books. And uh, if you turn to the very middle of your Bible, you're really good. You're going to turn to Psalms. And then you're going to look for the big numerals. That's going to be the chapter, and then the small numerals are going to be your verses. So you're going to turn to Psalm 78. If you land to the right, that's Proverbs, go back to your left. If you land it in Job, go back to your right. And you go to Psalm 78. Now, while you're turning there, I'm going to go and pray for us that God would... Um, Just use his word to speak to our hearts. I want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood and online. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. Let's pray and ask God to use his word to instruct our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are with us, even in the areas that we feel most inadequate. And Lord, I would imagine that there are parents uh, that are joining us in this room and in Edgewood and online and in other places in the world that oftentimes feel like they don't don't have a solid plan and that the plan that they have seems to fall apart. And Lord, I would imagine that there are some grandparents in the room that have felt very similarly as many parents do today. But Lord, I ask today that you would give us wisdom and that you would use your word to incline our ears and our hearts to you and that you would help us to discover ways that we can rear and raise our children in the midst of a challenging culture. to to be set apart, to be consecrated, and to be your people. And Lord, we just entrust to you this fact, that they were yours before they were ours, and that you know better than we do. And so, Lord, we just ask that we would align our hearts as parents, as grandparents, as people in this room, to be a part of what you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. When you turn to Psalm 78, you see that it's a mascal from Asaph. Uh, mascal is a, is a term that we really don't know concretely what it means in the Bible. But a lot of scholars would say, well, it's, it's a literary term or a musical term. There's no real evidence of what it is, but there is evidence that there's 13 different mascals in Psalms uh, as you read throughout them. And this mascal really is, uh, in Psalm 78, is, a, is an instruction piece And it's an instruction piece, namely to the audience of Israel. And Asaph is writing to remind Israel of really their their heritage. But not only their heritage, but also their responsibility in the midst of their heritage. And what he's really doing in a lot of ways is recalling even a passage that would have been found in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's, he's really in some ways playing off of a passage in Deuteronomy chapter six verses four through nine, where parents are instructed to teach their children as they come, as they go, as they sit, as they ride, uh, as they rise, to, to write God's word on the front lid of their, their eyes and to bind it on their arms and on their heart and on their doorposts and on their gates, they are to take and instruct their children with God's word. And so you see a similar thought process as Asaph writes, to the people of Israel. If you look at verse 1, he says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Cline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So he goes, I'm reminding you of the very things that you have heard from your fathers. The very things that were were once a dark saying or a mystery that we know and we have seen. And he says, and we're not going to hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. And then he tells them, we're going to tell about, he says, the glorious deeds of the Lord. We're going to tell them of his might. And we're going to tell them of the wonders that he has done. Now, what's interesting is, is if you pick up in verse 3, you see who he's initially talking to. And he says, hey, I want, I want you to tell the coming generation. So he's talking to a group of fathers in which he goes, look, I want you to impart this truth. And so you've got this generation of fathers who's to take and share in verse four with their children. But it doesn't stop there. I'm not gonna show you verse six just yet, but if you were to look down to verse six, he's gonna mention three other groups of people. He's gonna talk about and the generation to come and to their children and to the children that are yet unborn. And so he is talking here, Asaph is to five different generations of people. He goes, your influence is not merely limited to you and your children, but it actually goes far beyond your children. To your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren, and to your great-great-grandchildren. Which is why this message matters for every single one of us. Because maybe you've graduated from the stage of being a parent, and you go, hey, listen, I can sit back on this one because it doesn't apply to me. Well, I would just tell you that if you have a generation coming after you, or for that matter, two or three generations coming after you, then you have the ability now to set the tone for what your family looks like in years to come. Isn't that an amazing thought process that Asaph is saying, hey, listen, you as fathers in Israel, seeing what God has done, his glorious deeds, his might, his wonders, that you get to impart that upon a people a hundred years from now. Now, if we see four generations in our day and time, we would consider ourselves blessed. It's very rare that you're gonna see a fifth generation. But I'll tell you, in the ways that we live right now, we're lucky to see a third generation, right? But can you imagine your life making such an impact that you would see and impart this truth to a fifth generation? That's his point. And he goes, and what you're imparting is the glorious deeds of the Lord, of his might and the wonders that he has done, and so, the very first thing that you and I need to know is that we are to impart to the generations to come and our own children the supremacy of God. We're to teach them the supremacy of God. Now, when I think about parenting, um, there's a guy named George Barna who does research. Many years ago, probably 20 years ago, I read a book called Revolutionary Parenting. And one of the things that he talked about, I was in student ministry, and so I was trying to help shake kiddos and families. But he talked about that there are a few different approaches to parenting. He said there's, there's kind of this, um, you know, in one sense, there's this idea of parenting by default, that there's really no grand plan to, to parenting. In some ways, you just take the, the path of least resistance. You take it as it comes, you go the easiest route possible, and you just try to somehow survive it. And he goes, and that happens quite often. He goes, there's another form of parenting that you'll see often. And he says, and it's just in some ways, it's a trial and error approach. And it's that you, you learn as it comes. And you experiment and you try different things. And he goes, and, and as you do that, he goes, you kind of learn what to do, what not to do. And he says, and that's a very common form. But he says the most uncommon form and the preferred method of parenting, which is the one that he wrote about, is revolutionary parenting. And revolutionary parenting is set on this concept that there is the supremacy of God. Now, when I think about the supremacy of God, I'm not merely saying, oh, God is supreme, but it's to teach the aspects and the qualities of a supreme God. It's helping our children to realize that he is indeed the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega that before time and space ever was, God is there. And before you and I had a watch on our wrist, that God was there. That he is the beginning and the essence of everything that we see and even the things we don't see. When we think about this idea of God, it's to know that if he is the center of the universe, he is the center of the world, he is the center of your Gregorian calendar... If he is the center of time and space and everything and he desires to be the center of your life, don't you think he desires to be the center of even our parenting? And if he is the center of our parenting, then the question that you've got to ask yourself is, does that mean he's also the center of your education? That even as you approach issues, that he is the center, the central being, the supremacy, even as you navigate topics. And that's really the idea is that you would see Asaph outlining this in Psalm 78. He goes, You are to teach about the glorious deeds of God, his might, his power, the wonders that he has done. Now, for us, we may struggle in some ways to go, Okay, but how do I do that? I, I tell him that, that they cre- he created the sun and the moon and the stars of the sky. Absolutely. It goes beyond that. Think about what he's. He's conveying, and we don't have time to read all of Psalm 78, but he's helping them realize the God of the Bible is the very God who met Abraham and called him out of Ur, the Chaldeans. He's the very one who made him the father of the nation of Israel. He's the one who gave him the promised son, Isaac. And he gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, but he chose Esau. I mean, uh, Jacob above Esau. And he doesn't just stop with Jacob. He gives him sons. And Joseph is the one who he houses in Egypt for the restoration of his people. And then he brings his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And if you remember, he goes, he provided a lamb. It was a Passover lamb. And he gave us a substitute that we could put his blood on the doorpost of our homes. And we would be saved by the angel of death. And then he parted the Red Sea and he brought us out. And then from there, he gave us manna and food and provision. And from there, eventually he takes us and he goes to give us land and people and blessing. And God is doing all these things. And Asaph is reminding the people, look at all the ways that God has given us things. And he doesn't stop there. He goes, look, and you remember when we didn't have law, we had nothing to nav- navigate our lives. God met with Moses on Sinai. He gave us law. He gave us instruction. He gave us the priesthood. Now, if you're reading through the Torah right now, which is Ma- uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which I'm actually doing it through a chronological study. Um, I'm actually into the very first part of Numbers right now. If you're reading," Through that, you realize all the ways that God has provided for the people of Israel. And he has provided them concrete truth. He has provided them boundaries. He has provided himself. And you see all the ways that he is supreme. Now, that is what Asaph is reminding the people of. But for us, I think we can go a little further because we don't merely have the five books of the Torah, which by the way, simply means, Torah means to teach or to guide or instruct, that's what it means. We don't just have that. We have an additional 61 books of our Bible that have been accepted as uh, a canonized process in our Bible that we can use as the whole counsel of God's word. And that lends me to what Paul writes to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter one. If you want to hold your spot in Psalm 78 and turn over to Colossians, you can. I'll put it for you up on the screen as well. And you can make a note of it. Go back and read it later at your convenience if you would like. But this is what Paul writes to the church of Colossae in Colossians one, beginning in verse 15 <clears throat> he says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, he is the person of Jesus. And he goes, he is the image of the invisible God. So if you can remember the day that Asaph is riding, no one has seen God. If you can remember that Asaph, if he talks about Sinai and the law given to Moses before he breaks them uh, because of his people's idolatries, he comes down from the mountain. He goes, You couldn't see me. Do you remember Moses asking, Lord, can I just see your face? And God hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he goes, you can't see my face. And he passes by and he gets to behold just a, a slice of who God is. Here, Paul is saying, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What you have not been able to see, what you've not been able to touch, what you've not been able to understand, he is the embodiment of who God is. And he is here. And Paul says, and you should behold him, because he is the firstborn of all creation. He gives him a title of preeminence. In verse 16, he goes, and he goes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If you look at verse 17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is specifically talking about the person of Jesus. And what he is saying is, is you think God as creator and sustainer, he goes, great, go further. Look at who Jesus is. And if you know John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know that Jesus was with God in the beginning, and not only do we know that Jesus has always been, he is the A to the Z, the Alpha and the Omega, we also know that when he spoke, according to Paul writing an inspired word, when Jesus spoke, everything was created. And so Jesus has been a part of the process all this time. He is not merely the one who died on the cross for our sins. That is true. But he is the one who also creates and understands what it looks like to recreate. To take something that is broken and old and distorted and to make it new. He is the preeminent one. Now why do I tell you that? Because if you and I are going to think about the supremacy of God, we don't merely think, oh, God is distant and he's far off and he can't be understood. Because the word of God tells us that the word who was with God in the beginning came forth and he now dwells among us. And he came among his people, and he understood what they dealt with, and he was tempted in every way, just as people are, yet he was without sin. He made an appropriate sacrifice on behalf of his people. He died, was tortured, rose again on the third day so that we might be reconciled to God. And that, my friends, is the God that we teach our children about. When you think about the supremacy of God, and you could write in Psalm 78 around verses one through four, you could simply say, teach my child about a really big God. Quit putting God in a little four by four inch box and go, he's a big God. He is a supreme God. He is the God who created everything we see and know. And scientists can't explain him. They can distort him. But they can't explain him because he's inexplainable. He's incomprehensible. Moses says, hey, Lord, who do I tell the people that you are? And he says, tell them I am who I am, which means I can't be explained. I can't be contained. I I can be distorted, but I am coming, and I am among you, and I am big, and I am mighty, and I am powerful, and I am omniscient, and I am omnipresent, and I can do all things because I am the great I am which Jesus explains himself in just seven I am statements, and that doesn't even do enough to give us the fullness of who God is, which is why, friends, we'll need an entire eternity to figure him out. He's a big God, and our children need to know that he's a big God. Matter of fact, it doesn't stop there. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he goes, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God Was pleased to dwell. That statement alone is an incredible statement. That when you see Jesus, God is no longer distant. He is no longer unknown. He has made himself available. He has come close to the sinner. He has made himself known. And you see why? Because through him, verse 20, he is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He came so that he could redeem sinners like the past of Israel that Asaph's talking about. He goes, look, you've been a stubborn people, but don't, don't be like that. Don't teach your children the stubborn ways. What's he want? He wants them to see God. What is Paul talking about? Hey, see God, behold his glory. He is a big, big, big God. And that's how you teach your children the supremacy of God. But it doesn't stop there. Look at what he says in Psalm 78. As he continues, Asaph says, and he, that's God, established a testimony in Jacob. Now Jacob is one of the patriarchs of Israel. He was uh, one of the <clears throat> he was one of the sons of Isaac. Um, and and what's interesting about that is that his name was renamed to Israel. And so he says he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So he. He goes, hey, look, I I pointed a testimony in Jacob, and I did so also in Israel. So he gives them all that they need as a guide. And then he says, which he commanded our fathers. And then look at the word there, to teach what? Their children. So the idea here is that God doesn't just merely make himself supreme, but when when he sent himself to Moses... And he goes, hey, go and tell them to let my people go. Moses goes, hey, okay, who, who are you? He goes, I am who I am. And he's trying to teach Israel, even through Asaph, who God is. And you do that most when you teach your children to delight in God's truth. Now, when Asaph is writing this, the truth of God that they have really at, at their hands is much more limited than the truth that you and I have. But now we have the whole counsel of God's word. And as we think about delighting in God's truth, the question you've got to ask yourself is, okay, what does that mean to teach children God's truth? Well, here's the thing I think about. If God is indeed the center of everything we see and know, and he created all that we see and know, and he wants to be the center of not only our lives, I think he wants to be the center of my teaching. He wants to be the center of what it is that I impart to the next generation. So when Jesus says these words in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Y'all know that one? Y'all heard that? He's not merely saying, hey, I'm the way and I'm the path. He's not merely saying, hey, that I'm the life. And, but he says this, I am the truth. And when I think about this idea of delighting in God's truth, I come to an impasse in our culture. And the reason why is because one of the prominent theories in our culture is that truth is relative. And so oftentimes people live their life as if truth cannot be discerned. For instance, what I mean by that is that if you and I were to go to academia, a college across the land, we might find someone who is willing to argue whether or not 2 plus 2 equaled 4. Now, for a lot of us, you would say, well, you're old school or you're traditional because you believe two plus two equals four. But yet you're going to stumble into someone else and says, well, no, I have a theory and I have a a notion to believe that it's five. And you may go, well, okay, well, what in the world? Well, I'll tell you, instead of having a conversation about it, what happens is as we just say, you know what? You believe what you want to believe. And I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And there's no real conversation about where truth is found. And it becomes very relative. Now, what's interesting is is we're not not talking merely about mathematical equations, are we, in this culture? Right now, we're trying to figure out marriage, gender differences, same-sex attraction. We're having conversations about those things. I would venture to say that with as many ladies that are in the room, one of the prominent issues is, Hey, who has control of your body? And that's just a conversation that's happening all the time. And I would venture to say that you would think, well, I go to church at Stone Point and I I think I I land here, here, and here. And I'm just gonna say, I think you'd be surprised at where a lot of us land on a variety of issues if we don't see God's word as the central element of truth. And what I mean by that is if it's merely based off of a relativism, which you decide what is true for you based off of your own past tradition, or for that matter, maybe you decide what is truth because of what you've been taught or what you've been exploring in academia, you may have come to a conclusion that is different or separate than what God's Word is. And friends, that is a big point of parenting. If God is indeed supreme... And he desires to be the center of our lives. The question is, is he the center of your teaching? When I think about Peter and he writes just these words in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, I'm not gonna put it on the screen. I just made a note of it for myself. Uh, When he just says, listen, God's divine power has granted us everything in life, all things that pertain to life and godliness. When I think about that, I think that God's truth in some way is going to help me navigate every situation in life. Particularly cultural issues that might be relative to some are concrete to me. When I think about the way that God works, he's he's not distant, he's not far, he's not even desiring to be abstract. He wants to be clear and he wants to be tangible and he wants us to give very clear credence to his word as to what is true and divine. What's inspired. And so I will tell you that for me, I think about God's Word as truth. And I'm committed to making sure that in our home, we navigate issues through God's Word. Which, listen, can I just tell you, does not always make me a popular parent. And the reason it doesn't make me a popular parent is because it's very easy for my children to look around and say, okay, I understand why you say it this way, but my friends are doing this way. And I just say, listen, I understand that you are at a crossroads. And I understand that in this season, that is hard for you. But what I'm telling you is that God has appointed it unto me in this season to only be the parent for us at this point in time in our life to three kiddos. And I can't parent hundreds of others. I can only parent three, and I can only be faithful in doing that for what God's called me to do with three. And I'll just tell my son, Brady, and my son, Caleb, my daughter, Blakely, listen, I understand that you don't like where I land or where we seem to go in this particular issue, but what I'm just telling you is I believe it's God's best for you in this season. And I'm not intending for you to carry an incredibly heavy load of luggage that you're not intended to carry in this season. As you get older and you can carry more luggage, then we'll open more luggage and we'll explore it. Now, here's the challenge, is that our kids can lose joy through the thief of comparison. But my, my friends, they, and it's a conversation all the time. Here's where it concerns me. Oftentimes, the conversation that we might have are people that we even go to church with that we see issues differently. The lens is totally different. And I can't be responsible for all of that. But what I can tell you is that it can be very confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because a lot of us would say, well, I delight to, to instruct my kids in, in, in God's ways. But the question is, is, okay, do you? And if you do, then what is God's ways? Because God's ways are not trial and error parenting. And it's not, hey, take it as it comes, we'll go the least path of resistance. It is a revolutionary parenting. It is saying as we approach topics like social media, which is a very hot button in our, hey, how do we approach it? And in this day and age, I I think it's so important that the last week in this series, God in Everyday Life, we're gonna talk about God and social media, the internet. I think it's a huge topic in this day and age. So I spend a lot of time with teenagers right now, but parents, you and I, if we are going to be Teaching our kids the center of God's truth, we're not merely sitting them down for an hour-long devotional, saying, "Hey, let me tell you about the story of Rebecca and her uh, and and Laban." We're not going back. We're not going to merely talk about Rebecca at the well. We do talk about those things, but as issues have come, we want to come back to the central part of God's word and explore. Hey, how do we approach an issue? That's what I mean about delighting in God's truth. Makes sense? You're like. Yes, but I don't know how. We'll talk about that shortly, okay? Asaph continues in verse six. He says this, the next generation might know them. So he says, look, you're commanded to teach your children, verse five, that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn, that they would arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Now you might ask your question, well, okay, why do we talk about the supremacy of God and why do we teach and delight in God's truth? And it merely is for this next purpose and that's so that we can instruct our children. Now you might wonder, well, what are we instructing our children on? Well, let me just point you back to to verse seven real quickly. I'm gonna put it for you on the screen because I want you to see a series of words real quick. Verse seven, you're instructing them that they should set their hope in what? In God. That's the goal. So you tell about the, the glorious deeds of God. You talk about his supremacy. You instruct him on his power. You bring them back to the central part of his truth so that they may put their hope in God. Really, the whole idea of instructing your children is that they would have hope in God. See what God did? See how God answered prayer? Hey, you see how God moved in this situation? And you continually bring them back to, hey, here's the hope in God. Hey, here's the hope in God. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult, but set your hope in God. Hey, don't forget the works of God. That's the point. And so when you think about instructing your children, it's to help them to delight in God's truth. That's exactly what Paul means when he's instructing the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter six, verse four. He says these words, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Instruction of the Lord. Maybe you're here like, well, I don't have children. I don't don't have any grandchildren. I don't have a next generation of anybody that I'm, so here's the deal. I would just encourage you to know that you also can be concerned about instructing the next generation. Matter of fact, I think about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you remember, Paul writes to Timothy, which Timothy is a young man in the faith that Paul comes across and begins to disciple him. But look what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. He says, you then my child, and he's talking to Timothy. He says, hey, you're my child. Hey, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will Be able to teach others also. Listen, maybe you don't have a child. Find you someone to mentor. Get you a mentee and begin to instruct them in the supremacy of God and the truth of God's power and his word and help them to get on the path, not of least resistance, but the path that is difficult, the path that leads to life. And it's narrow and it's hard and few find it. But here's the deal. Every single day, my watch goes off at 2.22. And you know what I pray for? I'm praying for parents to be bold in their faith to instruct the next generation. I'm praying for men and women in our church to disciple other people so that they too can go and instruct and disciple other people. See, when Asaph writes, he's writing and he's saying, listen, somebody has to step up and someone has to tell the next generation not only the supremacy of God, but the truth of his power. And someone has to be responsible for making sure that other people are instructed. Why? Because at some point in our lives, if we're not careful, we'll either become indifferent or apathetic. Indifferent or apathetic. And the more that we have resistance in our parenting, the more we have resistance in things in life, the more easy it is to go trial and error approach. You know what? That didn't work. I'll just throw my hands up. We'll try something else. Or we'll go the path of least resistance. But listen, to be to be the revolutionary parent that you and I are called to be, it means that even though the path is difficult, we keep moving ahead. Now, real quickly, uh, There's a guy named Brad McCoy. Uh, That's Colt McCoy's father. Colt McCoy played for the Texas Longhorns. He's now in the NFL and has been the quarterback. But one of the things that he said, and a few principles that he would teach his kiddos, he says, one of the number one principles that I want to teach, and I always taught my kids, is that, that I can either prepare the path or I can prepare you for the path. Now, what's interesting is, is that that right there is an incredible concept. Because we live in a day where you have what's called helicopter parents. You know what I mean? Y- y'all have ever heard that term? Raise your hand. Okay. If you haven't heard of the term, that might be because you're a helicopter parent. Okay. Um, and so helicopter parents, you, we're hovering all the time, right? There's another parent approach, not helicopter, but you're called, they're called lawnmower parents, which means you're always mowing the path. And here's what's interesting about that, is that we live in a generation, and we've learned it from generations ahead of us, that there's always this time to forge a new path for our kids. And as we mow the path, then it makes it easier. As parents, one of the fleshly characteristics that we have is we want to go ahead and we want to make smooth sailing, right? We want to cut down all the debris that's in their path. We want to make sure that they don't stumble over anything, they don't get cut on anything, they don't get hurt in any way. But the question is, is, is that what God desires? Are you preparing the path or are you preparing your children for the path? And when I think about when Jesus says, narrow is the, lead that, narrow is the road that leads to life and few find it, I think what, what, what Jesus is talking about is, hey, not many people find the way of salvation. Not many people delight in God's truth. A lot of people, if not careful, they want the easiest road accessible to them. And I would just say, you've got to be careful of that as a parent. And so that means that it's okay to let our kiddos linger on a homework assignment and instead of us staying up till ten thirty to make sure it's done let them go and face the conversation and the consequence of not completing it well listen there's some of us in here like no way no way because the problem is is if your kid gets a d or an f you think well that's bad parenting no it's an irresponsible child And at some point, our children have to become responsible. Why? Because in the days of a Jew, my son, who's about to be 13, was going to be considered a man. He's a man. And the question is, are we preparing men or are we sending out children? Are we mowing down the path or are we preparing and forging people for the path? And that, my friends, is what it looks like to instruct your children. Now, when I think about instructing your children, you set their eyes on the hope of God. I think about Tactile experiences. I think about ways that it's tangible. I think oftentimes we think, well, God is distant and 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 it is, does. It seems like a concept that is out there and abstract. How would you say? It? No, bring God near. Talk about His faithfulness. Show that to your to your kids, which really brings me to the last part of this section. If you look at verse seven, we're we're training them. Asaph says, not merely to put their hope in God and not forget the words of God, but to keep his commandments. It's about obedience. That they, they should not be like their fathers. Now, one of the saddest lines that you'll see in Psalm 78 is right there, verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers. Now, I don't know about you, but I hope my kids never say, I don't want to be like my father. There would be nothing more miserable on the planet Earth for my children to not want to be like their father. Daddies, don't let that be so. And you might go, okay, well, what do I do? Well, it's not about being a helicopter dad. It's not about forging the path to make it easy. It's about being available to teach them God's commandments. It's instructing them. And when I think about that, it comes down to time. Why? He goes, I don't want them to be like their fathers who were a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. See, that's what he's talking about. He goes, there are men whose hearts are steadfast and they are faithful to God and then there are men who aren't. And he goes, and Asaph says, I don't want want you to be that people. Don't impart that to the next generation. I want to see faithful men, which just leads me to the point of Hey, are you training your children in obedience? Obedience is difficult. Don't believe me? In your homework, just make you a note and go read Hebrews chapter 12 as God instructs his His kids and he disciplines those. In Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 10, it's difficult. Discipline's hard. But discipline and instruction remind us that we're loved. And I would just say, as we think about As we think about moving our kiddos ahead and the commandments of God, I think we got to be careful what we're looking for. What we're looking for is a mark of faithfulness over time. What we're not looking for is simply outward action. What we don't want is outward action, but an inward attitude. We want to see a gradual response of changing. Not merely external measures, but an internal treasure is the way I think about that. More than that, maybe this resonates more than anything. I don't want behavior modification. I want to see soul transformation. I want to see God move in the little areas in my kid's life. I don't want to argue about variety of things for the sake of arguing. Not that I'm always right or that my bride, Kelly, is always right because we're not. But at some point, we begin to see just a shift in, in our kiddos' hearts. But here's what I've come to know. My kiddos will rarely be what they cannot see. They'll rarely be what they cannot see. And the question is, is what are you showing them? That's why Paul writes the church of Corinth, and he just says these words. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he just says, be imitators of me as I am Christ. He welcomes them. Hey, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. And the question, friends, that you have to ask yourself is, hey, where am I leading my family? Is it worthy of following? Paul writes a similar thing uh, to the church of Philippi in Philippians 4, verse 9. Look at it, I love this verse. He goes, hey, what you've learned and what you've received and what you've heard and what you've seen in me, he says, practice these things. Hey, do those. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul just, I mean, he lays it out. He goes, hey, listen, okay. Hey, what you've learned, that's instruction. Hey, what you've received, that's wise counsel. Hey, what you've heard, what you've seen in me, all of our experiences, hey, do these things. That's obedience. That's what Asaph's talking about. That's what we should long for. Why? Because when you practice the things of God and you keep his commandments, Paul is clearly saying, you'll find the God of peace that's with you. When you prepare your children for a difficult path, they are going to have bumps and bruises. They are going to have scrapes. They are going to have difficult times. But if they know that their hope is in God, and then they have godly parents who will navigate their mistakes, their circumstances, their, their huge mess-ups, with grace, they'll find peace and confidence and hope and restoration and a faithful God. And that, my friends, I think is what God desires for us as parents. The trouble is, as parents, one of the things that we're fighting for more than anything with our kiddos and this season, for me, is time. Time, right? And you just look up and some of you are like, well, I only got one kid. I don't know how y'all do it with three. And then there's other families that you have five. well, There's a family in our church that has 11 kiddos. And you go, how do you do it? And the reality is it's by being strategic. It's by being wise with your time. And one of the things that George Barnett in Revolutionary Parenting that I mentioned earlier, he just said one of the chief components that you're going to see in in spiritual champions and parents that are forging the type of attitude within their kids that they need, he says a large portion of that's going to be revolved around time. And the time of what you say is valuable and important. And he says, and there are things that all spiritual champions do. And he says, there is a prime importance on God's word. There's a prime importance upon God's church. And there is a prime importance upon the values of a family, even as they sit and have dinner together. And so we live in a day and age where you rarely see each other and don't have dinner. And as parents, we're high-fiving as you head out and different paths. And and listen, here's what I would say is fight against that. Seek to find times that you have as a family. And so for us, it is very, very rare that we don't have dinner together. Now, I will tell you it's also rare that we have dinner at a consistent time. (laughs) But we always have dinner together. And even as we have dinner together, There's a few things that we do, and we don't do this as commonly right now because we live in a little bitty small place, and we can't all get around the dinner table, but we like to light a candle. And when we light it, we like to say, Christ is the light of the world. And then we like to spend time talking about why Christ matters, but even more than that, we use dinner as an important time to remind ourselves of patience. So we don't stuff our food down because we remind ourselves that we are in need of him. At the same time, we practice patience even as we fix plates, right? Because it's not about self-indulgence, it's not about serving ourselves first. And if we can remind ourselves that Christ is the light of the world, dinner is a great place for you to have conversations. That's not always opening the Bible and saying, hey, let's walk through Habakkuk chapter 1 today. Oftentimes, it's having conversations. And there's some great things out there to help you have godly conversations conversations about where you are in this season, things that you enjoy, random questions. There's a lot of ways for you to put a value on family time to create a safe place to help you teach your kids about the supremacy of God, to help them know that truth is found in him and in the scriptures as they navigate a day and age of relativism. No, there's concrete, absolute truth. And then you can instruct your children so that they are reared to walk in the truth in the life, in the way. And that is Christ. And that is our God who sent him to reconcile a broken, messy world and families for that matter for the sake of helping us forge a path not merely for your children but for their children and the next group and the next group. And what you and I do really matters. And I just pray that we would know that. Even in the midst of looking in the mirror today and going, man, I stink at this. I don't think I should teach this message. I pray that God uses it just to remind us of some of the things he desires us to do as parents. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would help us to guide our children, to include them in prayer and in singing and in memorizing scripture together. I pray, Lord, that we don't have to make it complex, but Lord, that we can just shepherd their hearts. And Lord, I just pray that in a, this room, that there would be some fathers in this room, that they, they take great initiative and that they would lead their family well, that they would shepherd tenderly, yet confidently. Lord, I pray for mothers in this room who Dad's not a part of the spiritual growth. I pray, Lord, that they would take initiative in just, Lord, a non-offensive and non-threatening way that, that they, would, they would lead their family and, and not pawn it off as to say, well, I, I don't have anybody to help me. I pray you'd give them courage to forge the road ahead. For, for those that are single parents, Lord, I just pray that you would supply all their needs, uh, that they're already overburdened, overworked, often feel isolated, maybe alone. Lord, I pray that you would give them dear friends. I pray that you would give them a village to help rear and raise their children in godly ways. Lord, I pray that all of us as parents would deeply abide in you and that our dependence would be not in and of ourselves, but in you. Because oftentimes we can lend in ways to take control of of things. And I just pray that we wouldn't. Lord, help us to resist the urge to be in control, but to trust the one who is in control of all things. You are supreme, and that includes our parenting. In Jesus' name, amen.